God, as we encounter your word, you said that it would be a lamp to our feet, a light for our path. And um, our hope is that today that that promise will ring true for all of us, that this could be a light for us in our everyday circumstance. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. It was two years ago this September that I was stepping off the plane in Uganda, Africa. It was, if you've ever been on one of these kind of trips, about 25 to 30 hours after we had started. And if you've ever been on one of those trips, you understand that a plane is basically like a soul vacuum. It just sucks your soul out of you. And you're just... So by the time I got there, I was a little uh, raw and I was a little tired because it had been actually a month before that. In fact, it was two years ago this week that I was sitting in a hospital room in Grand Island, Nebraska, which is one of the most ironic names of a town ever because it is neither grand nor an island. Um, But there I was. And it was, uh, my mom had become sick, and we were, uh, it was terminal, and we knew that she wasn't going to make it, but we weren't sure how long, it was sudden, and you know, all the emotions that go with that, a lot of you have gone through that, and some of you have gone through it recently. So we're in this situation of kind of suspended animation, trying to figure out, A, what was wrong, and B, how long was it going to be, and so, and meanwhile, I've got this trip that's coming, and I don't know what to do, because I really felt strongly that we were supposed to go, that, I, that God had an appointment for me there in Uganda. And so, you know, I talked with, uh, with my wife Shannon about it. I talked with my mom about it. We prayed about it. And I really, I felt a peace that I was supposed to go. And it was interesting because the, 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 the dilemma was, was she going to be, you know, they told us anywhere from three to six months that she would have to live. And, you know, if you get in you know, Uganda, it isn't like I could just catch a puddle jumper back to you know, Nebraska, which is almost, if, there is, if it is possible to be more remote than Uganda, it would be Nebraska, and specifically where I am in Nebraska. So, but we fell to peace about it, so I thought, well, we'll just, we'll just go. And I thought, you know, hey, I can get some videos and some pictures, the kind of things that makes a mom proud and can bring him back and, and it'd give us something to do in September. Because, you know, at that time, we didn't even know. I was, we were going to take a car up there and leave it in Nebraska because I just had planned on I was going to be making a lot of trips back and forth. And so I went ahead and, and told the organization I was with, let's go ahead, let's book the tickets. It was sometime around this week in, in August. And on August 14th, my mom went home to be with the Lord. Now, I had a piece about going. And, of course, I thought it was because she was going to live longer. What I didn't know was that it was because she was going to live shorter. And so I didn't get to necessarily show her the pictures and the videos. But Hebrews talks about this great cloud of witnesses that looks over us and watches over us. So I think she probably even got better because she got like a front row seat to it. But be that as it may, it was in the middle of that month, having been gone for three weeks with, you know, uh, with my mom and then getting home. And then literally just 10 days after we got home, I'm going to get on a plane to go to Africa for the first time. And I don't like to fly anyway, which is, I think, God's sense of humor in the job that he gave me. Um, And I especially don't like to fly over open bodies of water, um, especially after that uh, lost thing happened. And so, so here I am, I'm, you know, getting on this plane and, and I, I get off that plane that night or day or whatever. I was night there, day here. And, and I kind of chuckled because I remembered something that, and, and all the time of all the planning, all the preparations, all the conversations leading up to that moment for months before I had forgotten something. And what I remembered was 20 years before that, when I was 37 years old. 17 years old. That didn't feel right, did it? 
<laughs> trapped in a time warp continuum. I, at 17 years old, I was, you know, a little scrawny, you know, pimply kid with an excellent perma mullet in Guatemala City in a hotel room. And I had gone on this missions trip with this guy that was just starting his ministry. He had, was on a little video show called Fire by Night, and I remember uh, I was the little sound guy at church, and so when they announced that he was going to do this missions trip, I actually, at the end of the service, I had to rewind the VHS um, to get the phone number. And so I went home that night, and I called the number. It was 918-492-1892. I don't know why I remember that. Um, but that's what, I swear that was the number. And and so I get home, and I call the number that night because I'm 16 and don't realize that people, like, don't, you know, they have office hours. And the guy answers the phone on the other side. It was actually his home number, and it was a guy named Ron Luce who had started a ministry called Teen Mania, um, and he has gone on to have a fairly large uh, thing called Acquire the Fire, and they continue to take thousands of kids overseas every summer. But this summer, it was 30, 35 kids and me going to Guatemala so we could do skits and uh, and get, win people to Jesus. And, and so I, I went on that trip once in 1987 and then again in 1988. But what I was remembering that night in Africa was I was remembering on my knees in a hotel room in Guatemala praying very, very, very sincerely, earnestly, maybe even passionately, God, please don't ever send me to Africa. I didn't have any desire. And in fact, when I went on this trip in 87, and then again in 88, I thought, I'm going to carve this notch on my gun for God, and then I'm going to get on with my real life, the rest of my life. It seemed like a lot of fun. It was awesome. I mean, I'm from Nebraska. You know, we don't get out much. Um, and so I, but I thought I'd be done after that, and that'd be it. And, but then I was there, and I remembered, oh, I don't want to, I started enjoying it, but I didn't want to enjoy it, because then I thought, well, then, then I might actually go do this again, and I don't want to do this, because I have a plan and it was an awesome plan. I was going to be a Christian rock star. I mean, you have no idea how awesome I thought I was. And I was, I mean, I had practiced in, we're recording this, but in fairness, it's true. I, I would be in my room. I'd be cranking the striper or the Petra with my guitar and jamming along and pretend that I was, you know. And, of course, a lot of people have anxiety dreams like you go to school naked or whatever. My anxiety dream was that I got booked into striper as the bass player and I didn't know the parts. So I'm up there in the spandex, ill-fitted, and I didn't know the parts. And that was my anxiety dream because that was, I really, that was my plan, was to go be a Christian rock star. And it felt like a great plan to me, right? I mean, Rick Kua, are you kidding me? I was going to be awesome. So I didn't want to enjoy it because I didn't want to get stuck being a missionary. And I went on to Bible college even and, and, and went on the youth track, the youth ministry track, because that seemed a whole lot more cool than being a missionary or a pastor, okay? So you could have long hair and earrings and, you know, and people genuinely leave you alone. So all that to say, I'm in Guatemala praying, God, please don't send me to Africa. And here I am 20 years later in Africa. And not only was I in Africa, I wanted to be in Africa. Now, that being said, what I had done that night in 1987, and I probably had started a little earlier, and it might be something that you can relate to, it's the I began to make a list of the things not necessarily write them down, but there was a running soundtrack of what I would and would not do for God, okay? Now, I would sing, I Surrender All, okay? That was one of my songs. But the other song, the other soundtrack, if you will, might have been more like the Meatloaf song, I'll Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That, 
So I won't go to Africa. I won't be a pastor. I'll do anything, but I won't do that. So that was this thing that began. And what I was really doing was I was writing up a writer for God. Now, if you've been around music at all, you know that if I were to uh, do a, a deal with somebody when I would book an artist into an, uh, an event or whatever, then I would, we'd, we'd get the remuneration and, and the hotels and the big ticket, you know, catering, that kind of thing. And then I would also, so that would be the deal. And then I would send a contract along that was the real deal, okay, which could range anywhere from 10 to 30 pages um, of all the extras. And if you've ever been to the smoking gun, you know that there's some crazy stuff out there that artists ask for, and there's a, you know, a caricaturization of what that looks like. And, but that said, what I would do is, here's the deal, and here's the, the real deal. And it's based in a very simple premise, and that is that the guy that we're doing the deal with, the guy that's going to be the promoter, the guy that's hosting us for the night, he doesn't really know the artist. He doesn't know the, and, and the truth is, is that it can be a good thing for that, because if he doesn't know the artist, doesn't know if, if I'm going to pull into town with three buses and a semi, uh, we kind of need some stuff to happen for, the, for it to go smoothly. So that's kind of what this was meant to be. But what it's saying is that you don't know me, you don't know my artist, and so I have to help you understand what it is that makes them comfortable or uncomfortable or what can make this work and not work. And what it really comes down to, and whether it's for ethical reasons, nefarious reasons, or just communications reasons, it really comes down to, I just don't trust him. I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to do this, but I need you to get all this extra stuff for me. Now, if you've bought a homeowner's insurance policy, you know that there's also a rider that goes along with that. And that is the... And, um, if people that have been, in fact, Virginia's with us today who went through the flood recently. You know, people that had homeowner's insurance know that there was a policy that covered them, but then there was this extra little page that comes along with what's called the rider that actually says, here's what we're not going to cover. And remember this saying, the large print giveth, the small print taketh away, okay? And, and that's kind of what the rider did. I'm, and it's what I was doing to God. I was saying, look, the large print, I surrender all. The small print, except for that, and that, and this, and that, and these circumstances. And what it was really communicating to the Lord was, keeping in mind, I'm, I'm saying this to the God of all the universe, the God that David tells me knew me before I was born, wove and knit me together in my mother's womb, the God that David says he knows my thoughts from afar. I'm telling him what's better for me and what's not. I appreciate I don't have a heart for this. Right? I'm not wired that way. So I'm kind of explaining to him, the guy that made me, who knows what's good for me, who knows what is going to blow me away, what's going to make you know, my world awesome, what's going to make me tick, and what's going to be awesome. The manufacturer telling him what I will and won't do. And it all comes down to a lack of trust. Now we call that in uh, Christian circles faith. A lack of faith because I know me better than God does. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I was a nice guy, probably the nicest guy I know. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I mean, Shannon and I were really super, that, well, that make note to self, that is not funny. Um, we were nice people. We went to church every time the doors were open and even sometimes when they weren't. We were doing the youth ministry at the church. We had a little skater thing going on. We were tithing, I mean, for crying out loud. And we even sat in the front row, kid you not. Because we were nice people. We were 
godly people. We were following the Lord, right? We thought, this is awesome. We're Christians. Of course, the problem with that, even in the middle of hosting a college Bible study and all those things, was that one day I was reading. It's amazing how you can read the Bible and, and it, you can see what you need it to see, what you want it to see. And I remembered and realized one day when I, I was reading in Matthew 25 and Jesus said, on that day, I'm going to say unto them, did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you visit me when I was in prison? It must be in the next chapter when he says, did you go to church every Sunday? Did you sit in the front row? Did you tithe? Did you? And it just wasn't there. And I thought, oh, crap. Because all these things that I've been so focused on, and as a family leading the family in, it's not even in there. Don't get me wrong, it's not that it's bad for us to come together. But I had put all these priorities on those things and not on the things that Jesus himself says. I don't know what else we're going to talk about on the day that I see him face to face, but I got a little bit of a cheat sheet, and I know where it's going to be. And so from that was born this journey that we're on right now, which is conduit mission. Now, keeping in mind, I had completely defined what it was that God was going to do. And I had planned this whole thing out, had all kinds of great plans, but I had defined what God was going to do. Instead of just saying, hey, God, to you, I just want whatever it is you want for my life. Not because it's going to be some kind of a giant buzzkill. Not because he's going to make me do something I don't want to do, like it's some sort of like boot camp where I'm out there doing push-ups. I'll do respect, Kyle. Um, because I... Oh, he's out with the kids. Um, he's a, a resident Marine. But it isn't like he's going to be sitting there yelling at my face, calling me dog face. I mean, I got enough problems, you know. Um, it's, he knows how I'm wired and how I'm made. And so when I give that over to him, and in fact, what I really had to do, and there was a moment not long ago where I finally had decided to say, God, I'm tearing up my rider. All these things that we have, I've given and said I will and won't do, just whatever. You know, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that my way, and keeping in mind, my way wasn't that bad. Like, working with artists who were going out and preaching the gospel and talking about the cross. I mean, there was a lot of good and value in that. And so it wasn't inherently that it was sinful or less valuable, but it was God was getting ready to shift lanes on me, and I needed to be ready and okay with that. And ultimately, where I sit here today, in this little room, under the bright, shining, meat and more sign, this is not how I thought our life was going to turn out. This was not at all on my radar screen, ever, for any reason. And I think that maybe you might could relate to that. This idea that, hey, my life, Darren, that's true. This is not at all what I had in mind. My plans and my thoughts, where I sit today, my life has not turned out anything like I planned. And I think that Stephen, if he were here today, the guy we just read about in Acts chapter 7 would have to say, this is not exactly how I planned my life. We don't know much about Stephen's history. We don't know if he was one of the disciples that was on the earth that followed Jesus. There was generally some, a group that was there that was unmentioned. There was a group of 120 that was in the upper room. We don't know if he was one of those. So we don't know a lot about his history. But I can promise you that probably when he was growing up as a little boy, he didn't look to his daddy and say, Daddy, I hope that I grow up someday and someone throws rocks at me and kills me. That would be awesome, right? The career path day in the Jewish high school for the line for getting martyred was probably an empty line, right? And yet here's Stephen, and his life didn't turn out at all like he planned. And I think... We see it in his 
the way it's recorded about him, that he was at peace about it, that he, he shone like an angel. And I think that we can probably pick up some lessons from a guy like Stephen and a guy that embraced the path that God had for him. He was doing it in a society that, quite honestly, wasn't unlike ours at all. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, we're different because we have, like, cars and they had donkeys. I understand that. But understand that when the writer of Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun, that he really meant it. See, Stephen was beginning to speak to a group of people that were very, very religious people. And he was focusing in chapter 7 and saying, on the places and the procedures. That's what they were saying. You're saying the temple and this and our procedures and, you know, it's all about Jesus and grace now. And, we, and they were mad because the places and the procedures were being messed up. And I think that if we were really, really honest, especially as it relates in America, we as an American church, and this is a broad and sweeping statement. I understand that there are exceptions to this rule. But there is a large movement afoot that is all about the place and the procedure. In his book, Radical, David Platt says that there's $250 billion worth of real estate in America that are churches, that the churches have spent $250 billion on facilities. And we, of course, once we get one of those built, God forbid that we use it for anything except for our Sunday services because we don't want to scratch the pews. We don't want to stain the carpet. We don't want to break up the high-def you know, audiovisual. And we do it, and I think with the best of intentions. Understand that the people that Stephen was speaking to, it was with the best of intentions. They just thought that's what God wanted them to do. What they were mad about was that Jesus didn't look like what they thought he looked like. They had painted a picture of Jesus in their mind, and when, when Stephen starts talking about a God that isn't about places and procedures, it kind of freaked him out a little bit. And I want you to know that when you start talking too much about th those mega multi-million dollar facilities, it gets people kind of uncomfortable because we got to reach people, right? We got to reach them. So we got to make very, very big and comfortable seats and again, high def and the whole thing so that we can quote, reach people. And what we've done is created this little facility and the procedure is that we got to come there and that's where we reach them. And it becomes very difficult to do what the Lord has called us to do, which is to send us out of there. I mean, I would be nothing happier if in five years none of you were here. That's kind of hardcore. But what I'm saying is maybe God would send you out someplace to be someplace. We're just a stopping off, a watering hole on the way on your journey to where God is sending you to be. And if we spend too much money and get too much going and we got to make the note, of, you know, it's just like a little dragon in the backyard. You can feed it and it's kind of cute and cuddly at first, but eventually you've got to feed it or it's going to burn you. If we ever get a building and God leads us down that road, man, pray that it'll be just some old warehouse with some floor that we can use and, and, and we can put little signs everywhere. Hey, this is where, you know, this is where the carpeting was going to go, but we just saved $38,000 and here's a picture of the house we just built in Haiti for feeding kids. I mean, let it be that. I mean, that's the heart of what we're doing. Places and procedures are not at all what we're doing. And at the end of the day, I don't have to get angry or upset about what's happening with if a church is building a big building. I don't, I'm not Holy Ghost Jr. God is, God's got it under control. He can figure that out. But for us and for this, if that's what you're looking for, man, there wouldn't even be any hard feelings. God, you know, we love you. That's just not what we're doing. But the places, the procedures. In fact, he would go on to say in chapter 7, I think it's in verse 43-ish. No, it's not. It's a little bit earlier. But he talks about the, the prophet would say, you built this big old temple, this big old building, and I didn't even ask for it. He's just saying to these guys, you're, you're worshiping this temple, and I didn't even ask for it. In fact, I'm going to read it for you. He says, 
in verse 45 in chapter 7. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them, and they took the land from the nations God drove out from before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked and David asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. And look at this, however, and he starts quoting the prophet. The Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? You get into this big place, this big ornate temple, and you can read how much money they spent on it. And God says, I didn't even ask for it. The, the earth this entire world that we live in, the entire globe, is his footstool, okay? In God's giant house, whatever it is, as, as important as we think we are, we're a footstool in the living room. He doesn't need us to go build a house for him, so we figure that as a man, we can build a house. So a house built by man is better for God than a man built by God who says, I want to be your dwelling place. A place and a procedure, that's a lot like our society is today. And not only that, but they were focused on idols. And he talks about that in verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. And this agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel. You have lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of the god Rephon. He goes on to talk about their idols. It was a day when they were given to idols of worship, things that weren't God. And of course, we look all around us and we see the things that we can worship. But that one Moloch really jumped out at me because Moloch was an evil and wicked practice, worshiping Moloch. It was a statue. This is historically proven. Where the statue would, the Moloch statue would stand with his arms out like this, both hands outreached. And a parent's, Parents would bring their baby, and in worship to Moloch, would bring their babies. There was a fire put in the belly of Moloch, and it would heat him up to scorching hot temperatures. And they would begin to play drums really loud. And the reason they would do that was so that when they placed their baby in the arms of Moloch and killed the baby, they wouldn't hear the cries of the baby. Israel participated in this worship. It was killing their babies for the sake, and Moloch, if he did this, if you worship him and you gave him the sacrifice, it was said that he would bring you prosperity. And you think, oh, Darren, we don't do that in our society. Thank God. Hundreds of thousands of our babies have been murdered. Murdered. We can't hear their cries because we're too busy making it a political talking point or yelling and screaming about it on a corner. We don't hear their cries because of the noise, but thousands, hundreds of thousands of babies have been murdered in the name of prosperity because I can't afford this kid. I, I, I can't take care of him. So I, I wanna, you know, I'm going to give him up and I'm going to go on. I don't want to mess with my life and my thing. And in the name of prosperity, in the name of making my life better, we're giving away our babies. That's happening in our country right now, today. The God of Moloch is still alive and well. He just looks a little different. He looks like a doctor in a room somewhere. It, the societies haven't changed that much. In fact, they would go on and they would bring false witnesses against Stephen. Stephen, it says that they came in and they said, hey, he said he was going to do this with the temple. And, 
And, and it might ring a bell because Jesus, that happened to him just a few months earlier. Might have even been the same false witnesses. Think about that. The false witnesses that came in and said, Jesus said that I was gonna, he was going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, blasphemy. And here's the thing. Understand this parenthetically. Bearing false witness, which was a command, which, by the way, was different than lying. Thou shalt not lie, and thou shalt not bear false witness. Those are two different commands. False witness the only example we have of it is in that of Jesus. They brought false witnesses against him. Stephen, they brought false witnesses against him. And here's what they did. They gave the right information, but the wrong implication. They twisted the truth. They made it sound worse than what it was. John says that when Jesus talked about that with the temple, he was talking about his own body, not about the physical temple. He was clear, but they brought it in. They took the right information, the wrong implication. And if you've ever watched a news program where they get the talking heads on, that's all around us right now. Well, you said this. Didn't you say this, Senator? Didn't you say this? And yeah, but it was out of context. Right information, wrong implication, false witness. I could go on, and you're like, Darren, please don't, and I won't. But Stephen was growing up in a world exactly like we're in today. They might have had donkeys instead of cars. They might have had temples instead of megachurches, but it was very similar to what we're experiencing. And in that, what we see is Stephen, who it says in verse 5 of chapter 6 that he was full of the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Three times it's going to say that, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And you'd say, yeah, Darren, we know that because he went and he did great miracles and signs and wonders. And I say, no, no, we don't know it because of that. Here's why we know it. The Bible says that the proof of the Spirit, the fruit, if I were to say, is that an apple tree, how do we prove it? The apples. The proof, the fruit of a tree, the fruit of the Spirit in you is, Galatians tells us, love. And so if that fruit is growing on us, and again, it goes on, it love, singular, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and everything else, the peace, joy, long-suffering, patience, is describing what love is. It's the taste, the texture, the feel, the look, the color of love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit, and we know that he's full of the Holy Spirit because what's he doing in the beginning of Acts chapter 6? He's feeding the widows, the orphans, taking care of those that are in need around him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. And we know that he was full of faith, it tells us in chapter 6, verse 5. And we know that he was full of faith, not because of the works and the miracles and the signs and the wonders, but because he was on a journey with God that was taking him on twists and turns and curves that he didn't see coming. And the whole time, he held steady. He knew that, hey, this is not how I planned it to be. But I can, at the end, when he's praying of his life, he's praying, God, Get me out of this mess. No, he's praying, God, don't hold this against them. Uh, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's, it's similar to what Jesus did, do you understand? He was full of faith, full of trust that God had it figured out. And yeah, he was full of power, it tells us as well. Dynamus, the Holy Spirit in him. We talked about that last week in 1 Corinthians 12, that the gifts of the Spirit are actually in Romans 12, but in 1 Corinthians what we see is the operations of the Spirit. And if you hang around with anybody that's on the mission field right now, man, it is happening all around us. It might not be happening in Franklin, Tennessee, but Indonesia, China, Africa, there are people getting up from wheelchairs. God is healing people. His air cover to our ground war. The Holy Spirit is alive and well today, still operating, still doing great work. Stephen was a man full of power. 
boldness in that power. By the way, when the Spirit fills us up, Acts 1 tells us that the purpose of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Spirit coming on us, isn't so we can run around and do laps and all that stuff. I'm necessarily wrong with that, but that isn't the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The purpose, it says in Acts 1, is to give us power to be his witnesses. And what we see in Stephen is a guy that had the power to be a witness. He would have been considered a deacon in the early church. And I think it's 1 Timothy 3, 13, where Paul says that if you're a deacon, that you actually purchase for yourself a great deal of boldness. And boy, did Stephen ever do that, right? I mean, they're throwing rocks at the guy. And he's praying for him. We see Stephen being a guy that was full of not only power and faith and the Holy Spirit, but he was also full of the word. He was obviously a student of scripture. If you read Acts chapter 7, front to back, you see that this is a guy that knew the word. Now the Holy Spirit obviously had to bring it to his remembrance because he's quoting. He's not like me looking for verses and reading. He was quoting it. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will bring all things to your remembrance. But you can't remember the word re denotes that it had already happened once before at least, right? So if it's in there, God can bring it to your remembrance. But if we don't spend time in his word daily, if we don't spend time, even, I mean, you're here this morning. So this, these things that are in you, when you need it, when you are in a situation where you put yourself, or God leads you into a situation where you need it, the Holy Spirit will bring it to your remembrance. But remember there's a re in that. You have to know it on the front end. Stephen obviously knew it on the front end. Now, all that to say, Matthew 25, Jesus would tell us that if you're faithful in the little things, that I'll make you ruler over much. Interesting, because the reward for service is greater service. I get to do something more. You think, that's really not a reward, because I was looking to be served. (laughs) I thought the reward for me serving was that someone would now come and serve me. Because I want to, you know, I want people to serve me. And again, God, he wired you, he built you, he made you, and he knows how you are wired. He knows how I'm wired. And we are wired to serve. The reward for service, greater service. Stephen's reward for what he was doing, feeding the widows on a daily basis. He was, I mean, if you've been, <laughs> if you've been on a trip with us to Haiti, you know that when you're out there cooking in the field like these guys are cooking... It is no fun. It is hot. It's like you're standing there in someone's mouth cooking. Just just oppressive and hot. And that is what Stephen would have been doing. And his reward for that was greater service. But we know that he was absolutely in love with the Lord, serving those people. And he was rewarded with this greater service. Now, that being said, I am almost positive that Stephen didn't know what was coming. He didn't know what lay ahead for him. And had he have known, if someone cue, what is it, the Garth Brooks song, The Dance, had he have known. (laughs) No, here's, had he have known, how do you and I know what's in front of us, would we embrace it? Would we take it? And and so therein lies maybe the reason why God would A, not give us a heads up, 
I mean, when I prayed in Africa in 1987, don't you think God had a little laugh out of that? The God that knows all and sees all is like, <laughs> not only are you going to go to Africa, you're going to want to go to Africa. Bless your little heart. Sometimes I think that when it says that Jesus intercedes for us, that's kind of the vision I have in my mind, is that he's up there, yeah, God, I know he's saying this, but he doesn't really mean it. Here's what he really means. You know what's better for him. When he's interceding for us, in Revelation it talks about prayer that would rise from the throne like an incense. It's almost like Jesus is sweetening up my stinky prayers. He's like, oh, that's going to stink, but here, I'm going to light a match, and, and this will be better. And in front of the throne, God's saying, yeah, Darren, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but that's, you're so dumb, you have no idea. No idea. And here's the thing. When I was younger, I used to think, okay, God will give me the desires of my heart. And if this is what you think, pay attention. He says, he's going to give me the desires of my heart. So I would write out a list, and I'd be specific, because that's what I was told I should do. And I would write out my little list. Like I was writing to Santa or something. Dear Santa, I want a G.I. Joe. And my little list to God, and I would pray for it. And sometimes I would get it, and sometimes I wouldn't. And why didn't I when I didn't? And the answer is really simple. Is that, A, it wasn't God's will for my life. Period. My kid can ask me for candy at 8 o'clock in the morning, and he does. But it is not my will for his life. Now, sometimes it's my will for his life that he has candy. But not at 8 o'clock in the morning. He's four years old. I can be logical all day long with him, and he's not going to get it because his brain is not wired to understand it. Now, someday he'll look back and go, oh, boy. But for now, and so for me, juxtaposing that against me and God, okay, my brain function is at best the equivalent of Ethan to me when I look for me to God. When I'm saying, God, here's what I want. Here's what I'll do. I don't even know. I'm four years old in the mind of God. You know what I mean? When he says his ways are above my ways, his thoughts are above my thoughts, what did I think he was talking about? I don't understand it. I can't get my mind wrapped around his thoughts. And so when I am praying for things, it isn't like it makes him mad. He's like, okay, that's, that's awesome. It's not going to happen. But Because here's this better thing for you. Here's this thing that I've got for you. And as we grow and as we mature, he begins to download his desires into us. And so when he says that he will give you the desires of your heart, it doesn't mean he's going to give you what you want. It's going to give you what you want to want. Did that make sense? Kind of in my head, but I'm not sure if it did. What, what you want, what he, what he is going to download into you is now what you want. I want to go to Africa was because God downloaded that into me. Not because I was a genius. No, I mean, I'm from Nebraska for crying out loud. I didn't want to go to Africa. But I did because God downloaded it into me. And I think that when you, when you finally tear up the writer in your own heart, if you're sitting right now, let me, let me put it this way, in here, and this is not the way you thought your life was going to be. This is not what you had planned for your life. Because there was a moment, and Shannon can tell you this, I mean, there was a period of time before Conduit launched as a church where we were kind of, we didn't know what God wanted for us. We, become, we began to get frustrated. We began to get kind of annoyed and like, well, God, I know you want something for me, but I didn't have peace about this and a, an opportunity came from here and it didn't feel right. But what is it to the point where I was just getting miserable because God was downloading his desires into us, but I still had my 
demands, my list of this is what I'll do and won't do. And I want you to know, as sure as I'm standing here, pastor was on the list of what I didn't want to do. I mean, gross. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and it isn't that it's bad, but in our world, it kind of comes with a bit of baggage now, and we've all had our experiences. I didn't want any part of that. So much so that the tagline of our ministry was, Conduit Mission, we're not a church, we just act like one. Because if we were a church, that meant I was a pastor, and yee. And I say that, and here I am at 11.35 on a Sunday morning, a year later, and I want to be here. I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing. I'm waking up pinching myself. I get to do this? Like every day? I don't have an artist calling me at four in the morning who missed his flight or a bus tire that's blown. Or, I, I get to do this? I get to hang out with you guys and dream and figure out stuff and feed kids in Haiti? Are you kidding me? I get to do this? And I want to do it. Because God downloaded his desire into me, but here's when it happened. When I tore up my rider and said, I don't even care anymore. Whatever you want from me, God. Because keep in mind, I had a great plan. This this plan was awesome because I was going to be a traveling speaker guy. I was going to write books and travel and be thoughtful and smoke a pipe and you know wear tweed jackets with the little patches on their elbows and that guy. It was a great plan. I'd even thought it through that I could actually okay I could I know all these leaders and church guys and I could I could start booking myself now because of course I actually know how to book things because that's what I did I could book myself I'd only have one client me and I could start now and if I were going to quit in a year then I could just step out on a Friday and by Monday I'm I'm Darren Tyler speaker guy and it'd be awesome it was a great plan it just wasn't God's plan. And I couldn't get peace about it. And the closer it came to me pulling the trigger on something like that, it wasn't happening. And meanwhile, God was downloading his desires into me and into Shannon. I mean, we got, she's a pastor's wife. I mean, what, you know, what an awful job that could be, right? You know, I mean, we've all had pastor's wives around. It's like, it's a terrible job. Everybody looks at you and judges you and your kids got to be perfect and and I hope, by the way, I hope you never think that about my kids, because first of all, you're going to get let down. But second of all, don't put that on them. We're not putting it on them. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm standing here with a hole in my jeans. Okay, we're not, we're not going to put that on our kids, because we're just doing what God has called us to do. And here's the thing, and I want to say this, and then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna circle for a landing. When God is tapping you on the shoulder, the minute you tear up that rider, the minute when Proverbs actually talks about when you're looking for wisdom for leadership, in fact, we're going to talk about it in the next couple weeks, how to find God's will for your life, but tearing that up is one of the first steps because you ask with integrity. It isn't like I get to ask the Lord and then he gives me my, his option and then I get to pick between the others. When I'm finally ready to tear up my rider, Proverbs says, if I ask for wisdom, ask for leadership and will, from, uh, from the Lord with integrity, saying, I will do it if you tell me to do it, that is when his will becomes crystal clear in our lives. And I say that to you to say that maybe some of you are here and you're kind of in the in-between phase. You're in the frustrated phase. You're where I was a year ago. And it was miserable. I was laying awake at night. I just, oh, I didn't know what to do. And I was, it was awful because I'm like, I had a great job. What a great life. Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so empty? Why is it not? Because God was trying to download his desires, and I'm sitting over here going, no, 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 you know, I, I, got, a, I got this plan, because that plan is not a good plan. And the rewards on this side of heaven 
amazing and awesome and great. But hear me say this, it isn't just for this side of heaven because whatever it is that God asks you to do, and you know what, maybe nobody in this room will ever be asked to give your life physically for the Lord. Some of you might. It could happen in our world, in our society. Don't think it can't. But even if it isn't physically, metaphorically, Jesus never once asked us to live for him. He always asked us to die for him, to take up our cross, to die, to die to ourselves, to our own desires, understanding that when I do that and I clean them out, that his desires are downloaded into me, and the reward is unbelievable. And here's why I know this, because look at, in chapter 7, verse 54. And I hope this gives you peace, because if God is asking you to take a step of faith, and you're scared like I was, and trust me, I was scared. Still kind of scared sometimes. I mean, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. Walk away from my company and do this? Of course it's God. <laughs> and it's been awesome, but the reward is this. Not only on this side of heaven do we live a fulfilled life as we walk forward into what God has for us, as crazy as it might sound, but look what happened with Stephen. It says, Stephen, verse 55 of chapter 7, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The glory of God, we talked about it about a month ago in Exodus 33 when God said to send, or Moses said, God, send, I want to see your glory. And he says, I will let my goodness pass in front of you. God's goodness and his glory are synonymous. And so Jesus and goodness, Jesus and glory synonymous. He sees God's glory and he sees Jesus, but that's not the point that I want you to see. The point is this. Every time in the New Testament when Jesus is referred to in heaven, it refers to him as seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's seated because he's not freaked out. It's done. All that stuff that you and I pace the floor and walk, he's sitting down. He's like, I don't know what you're pacing about. It's done. I got it taken care of. It talks about him seated, that when he said, it is finished, it is finished. The priest in the temple never sat down. He was moving. There was constant movement because there was work to be done. And so when Jesus, the temple, says the curtain, torn in half, revealed the inner circle, and he sat down, except here. Because Stephen, at the end of his life, when his life didn't turn out like it planned, full of faith, and all that means is he's just trusting God, that God had his back, that God had written the story, that Stephen, by the way, wasn't even the main character in the story. Stephen was just a story, character in the story. God, by the way, in case you're wondering, and this might help a lot of you, help me when I figured it out, I'm not the point. God is writing a story about God, and I am a character in the book. Stephen was a character in the book. And when you begin to realize that, that this page that's being written about me there was a point. It was a bigger point. In fact, that point starts in chapter 8, verse 1, when it says, and on that day, it talks about a guy named Saul. We're going to talk about him in the weeks to come. On that day, a great persecution arose against the church. Now, Stephen, again, full of faith, trusting that God had under control, God was writing the story, looks up and says, pray, God, please don't hold it against them. But on that day, a great persecution arose against the church. Saul saw something that day that infuriated him. In seminary classes, you hear this statement that it says, weak point, pound pulpit, okay? And what that basically means is if you're not really confident in your point, just pound the pulpit. Make it sound good. And we see that a lot when people don't really trust in their position or they begin to shout and get all frustrated. And you see that on, on talk shows all the time, right? 
So here's Saul, not really his position has just been weakened and his response, his demonic response, was to increase his persecution against the church. Again, this is God's story, not Stephen's. God said his story, I need to preach my gospel, my great news in all the nations. The church had become quite comfortable where they were. They'd gotten saved. There's thousands of people there. They were all gathering in Jerusalem. They were staying in Jerusalem. They weren't going anywhere. But when a great persecution arose, they began to disperse. They got out of town. And from that moment, from that moment of Stephen looking at Jesus in the eye, Saul looking at Jesus, Saul increasing the persecution, thinking he was going to crush the church and instead blew the church up. The gospel was preached in all of the nations. From that one little moment from Stephen, the catalyst, it began. That being said, Stephen looking at Jesus, stones being hurled at him, we don't know if he had a wife and kids. Probably he did. His life was over, okay? All the plans for, you know, Brother Stephen Worldwide Ministries International Incorporated with flags and the whole, that was all gone because he is about to die. We know he was a young man. And it was over for him on this side of heaven. But think with me on this. Jesus, in that moment, who had been seated at the right hand of the Father, watching the whole thing, Seated, he's watching Stephen about to go down. Jesus, who is seated because the work is finished, looks to Stephen and stands up and says, Welcome home. He stands and says, It talks about when he would look at us in the eye and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I can't think of a better reward than one minute being pelted in the head with a rock and the next minute seeing Jesus with a welcome home. Not seated, but standing up. And I firmly believe that when you finally tear up your rider, when I tear up mine, and we jump into that jet stream of God's will for our lives, that A, the thing that we've been fighting and kicking against, Paul, it says he'll say later, Paul, it's so hard to kick against the goads, isn't it, dude? And Paul's like, yeah, he had been fighting against it, and we fight against it. But once we give it up, what we really and ultimately understand was, A, all the misery we were going through was, was our fault. We didn't have to go through it because we just needed to just say, God, I'm yours. But we go through that, we get to that point to understand that implicitly, without question, as we see Jesus one day, like my mom did two years ago, like you will one day, and he is standing up to welcome you home. You just understand that, man, this was all for me anyway. His love is so much more comprehensible than I could have ever figured out on this side of heaven. It says that in that day that I will fully know as I am fully known. I will understand it all. What else do you think we'll spend an eternity doing when we're worshiping, going, oh, that's what it was about. God, you're awesome. King James is righteous and true, your judgments, but it's just us saying, man, right on, God. That was awesome. Man, you're smart. And mostly, man, you really did love me. And I hope that you find the journey that I have found. It's not that it's without fear or without danger. You know, somebody said once that the safest place to be is in God's will. I don't know that that's necessarily true if you define safe by your, your life on this side of heaven. But if you describe it safe as in you're in his arms and that this earth wasn't the goal, yeah, it's safe. My prayer is that you find that. And as we worship just a few more minutes, might you join me in praying that God would 
make his way clear to you. And there might be some of you this morning that need to tear up your rider, tear up your list of what I will and will not do for the Lord. What better place to do than at the table of communion, a reminder of Christ, what he did for us when he tore up his rider, when he said, God, not my will, but thy will be done, that we might do that as well at the table. As we pray and worship, there'll be buckets that come out, and I pray that they don't disturb you in your worship, but know that that is there for us to worship the Lord with our giving. One more step in tearing up our rider is just trusting and saying, I'm just putting that in there and I'm leaving it behind because I trust that you got it under control, God. But wherever it is with you this morning, my prayer is that you find it and ultimately understand that Jesus isn't trying to pull you out of your comfort zone to make you miserable. He's after your joy. He's after your peace, the peace that passes understanding so that even if you one day are called to be like Stephen, that you also could look to the Father with peace and with love and with grace and say, forgive them, God, that you... You know what I mean? You're just right in the middle of his will at complete and utter peace. Father, um, might your will and your word pierce our hearts this morning. And some of us do need to tear up our riders. Some of us do need to get rid of the list that we have done of what we will and won't do for you. And start over from scratch with a blank piece of paper, with a blank whiteboard, and let you write your will on our hearts and on our minds like you promised you would in Jeremiah 31. Let your spirit speak to us this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.